As you make your way to your seat, can I ask you to look around the room? Can I ask you to look around the room, see those that maybe you're not seeing that you normally see here today? And would you make it a point to personally take responsibility of reaching out to that person you don't see in the room right now? So go ahead, go ahead and do that. Take a look around, see that brother or that sister, that youth, that kid um, that you're used to seeing or maybe you haven't seen in a minute. Just take around a moment and think, okay, it's my personal responsibility to reach out to that person this week. You guys down with that? It's easy to fall through the cracks. I think we've all been there before. Drifting's easy to do. And, um, and sometimes it's not even drifting. Sometimes just things come up, but it's always good to get a phone call or a text message from someone who noticed. Amen to that? Hey, let me pray, and I'm excited to open the Bible with you guys and get talking about God's Word. Father, it is so good to be here today. God, my, my cup is full. I almost lost my voice singing. Uh, Lord, it has just been a sweet morning just to hear this room resound with the voices of your daughters and sons. God, I'm just so thankful for that. And Lord, I know that every week you bring people here who are new to the brook, maybe they're just getting uh, connected, some who don't know you yet or just exploring this faith, trying to figure out what Christianity is about, understanding they are even following you. God, I just thank you, Lord, for doing that. God, for everyone who's here today, Lord, would you uh, meet us where we're at, Lord? For that one who's just excited about their faith, would you continue to feed their hunger, Lord, their hunger for you? Um, For the one who's feeling lethargic, slow in their faith, maybe it's just having a hard time, they're fighting for joy. Would you meet them in that place of struggle, God? For the one who feels lost and trying to get direction, Lord, show them that you are the way, that you are the truth, that you are the life, and you are the the way, Lord, for for eternity and for forgiveness. Uh, God, I pray for everyone here today that you would meet us. God, I pray for the churches in our community. I thank you for the faithful men and women who are really striving to, to... Make your name known in places in the city where it's not known right now. Would you bless those churches? Cause them to grow, God. Cause them to have maximum kingdom impact, Lord. We pray the same for us here at the book. God, meet us. Give us ears to hear what you want us to hear. And God, would you bless us with the eyes to see what you want us to see. And you're good to us. And we pray you do that. All for your glory. And all God's people said together. Amen. We all need that T-shirt, I survived the polar vortex, right? Yes. All right, let's be honest here. Who, who, who stood in their house? Who was hiding? All right. And who just said, I want to be able to say 10 years from now that I went outside, so you made sure you went outside, right? That's right, yep. That, that was me. I went out there. It was painful. Um, man, it was, it, was good to, it was good to experience that, but I'm glad it's gone. Long gone. Hey, today I'm going to be preaching about um, this idea of taking risk for God and His work. Um, It's our Vision Sunday. And so what my ambition to do today is to kind of give a recap of where God has brought us, but ultimately show us, I believe, where He's taken us and invite us all into that together. Um, We don't don't climb mountains, get a direct vision from God and tell everybody what He told us to do. Um, but there is a, a lot of prayer and discerning and conversation and seeking God out. Um, this past week, um, I've been reading a book called um, Rescuing Ambition. I love the title, just kind of reminding us to take risks. And in this book, a guy named Dave Harvey, 
uh, writes that he had sleep apnea. I know some of you guys are out there. Some of y'all had that. And I, I mean, at the men's retreat, I know some of y'all definitely have sleep apnea. <laughs> I could hear you two cabins over, right? One of the problems, apparently, with sleep, sleep apnea is uh, it's hard to dream because you don't get in that REM sleep, you know, that rapid eye movement. You don't, you don't get deep into that sleep. You're just kind of that surface level sleep, which is why you wake up tired. So this guy, Dave Harvey, was in that situation and uh, went to a number of doctors and finally one of the doctors said, hey, if I cut out your uvula, it'll open up your nasal passages and you should be able to, to sleep without snoring and be able to get better sleep. So he's like, you know, at this point, let me just go for it because I'm not sleeping good. And he says once the procedure was done, he began to sleep. He realized he was actually sleeping better. And then, and then he says this. He says, when I lost my uvula... I found my dreams. I didn't even know I lost my dreams until I found them. What a lot of us are at in times of life where we got all kinds of blockages to our dreams. Uh, Blockages to the things that we believe God is calling us to do. And there's all kinds of things. I mean, sometimes it's just the rhythm of life. But what happens is when we get stuck in this rut, we begin to lose sight of dreaming. I'm not talking pie in the sky, fluffy imagination. I'm talking like God-centered ambition that he calls us to do to accomplish his purposes. And what I I would long to see is all of us at the brook to, to get a taste of what God wants us to do individually with our lives and then collectively as a church. God forbid we become a church that doesn't dream anymore. And I'm not talking about self-centered, us-focused dreams. I'm talking about tapping into what God wants to do in this city of Chicago through us. We are his instruments. He wants to use us. He delights in using us. But the problem is a lot of times we just don't stop to dream and see what he wants to do. And so we want to make it our regular practice to cut out the blockage, to get away and ask God, God, what do you want us to do? And so my desire is to share with you some of the things God has done, but some of the things we also believe he wants us to do as part of his vision. Let's get that straight. It's not our vision. It's God's vision. It's his dream. It's his plan for us. We just want to see it better. And then we want to join him in it. So as I talk about our vision today, I could look back and talk about how God has brought some 160 people or so every Sunday and this sanctuary is some 70 to 80% full most weeks. I could talk about that, but I'm not going to talk about that today. I could talk about how God has equipped leaders and households to lead six real communities gatherings in our neighborhood and households to host them to disciple some 75 to 80 adults and youth and dozens of children. I could talk about that, but that's not what I'm going to talk about today. I could talk about how God has opened doors for us at the Brook to engage Steinmetz High School to provide lunches for teachers on report card pickup and write individual thank you letters to every teacher. I I could talk about how God used us at the Brook to teach ESL classes to lock elementary parents and others in the neighborhood. I could talk about how God used us to start a baseball league and how God had brought 60 kids into that baseball. I I could talk about that today. That's not what I'm going to talk about. I could talk about how the Brook kids have been going through the Bible for the past five years, cycling in from Genesis to Revelation. 
I could talk about how the kids learn how Jesus is woven throughout the Old and New Testaments this past summer and how in the fall they learned from Genesis and now are in Exodus studying the Ten Commandments. I could talk about that and the teachers that God is using. I could talk about the youth and how they learn to honor themselves, honor their friends, to honor their parents, honor their God this past fall. I could talk about that today. But that's not what I'm here to talk about today. You guys with me, fam? I could talk about how God taught us how to use and manage our finances to have a kingdom mindset this past February in our financial fitness class. I could talk about how God then used the generosity of the church to keep operations moving here, to allow us to pay our pastoral staff, office manager, hire two interns. I could talk about how God used your generosity to do that, but that's not what I'm here to talk about today. I could talk about the dozens of real uh, of of DNA groups that were started this past summer for discipleship or the 40 parents who came to the Art of Parenting class. I could talk about how hundreds came for the live nativity, Halloween candy distribution, Sunday morning gatherings, baseball games. I could talk about how God did that today. That's not what I'm here to talk about. I could talk about how we celebrate our five-year anniversary this past October. and had a great banquet and we partied like it was 2018. I could talk about the men who went on the comeback retreat to learn God's plan for manhood, to step up to his calling. I could talk about how the women went to the Made for This retreat and understood how they were made for maximum kingdom, big pact in this world, in this city, in our neighborhoods, in our households. I could talk about how God is raising up men and women. That's not what I'm talking about, though. I could talk about the many who faithfully serve here week in and week out in our connections team, our hospitality team, our worship and AV team, our ushers, prayer team, facility workers, elders, formation team, real community leaders, hosts, youth leaders, Brook Kids volunteers, and baby nursery workers. We could talk about that. We could talk about how God baptized people this past year, how some came to faith in Jesus, how households were restored, prayers were answered, God gave crazy provisions and strength for people to get through the hard times in life. I could talk about that. But that's not what I'm talking about today. Because among many things, what these things have in common is that they happened last year. And while we need to remember and celebrate the past, God doesn't call us to live in it. What he did last year is not necessarily what he's going to do this year, but he's going to do something. And what we need to do is remember what he's done, to glory in his name, to celebrate his work, but say, God, that's yesterday. We want to see more, Lord. We want to keep following you, God. We want to see all that you're going to do in and through us. You guys with me here this morning? This is what we want to see happening. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. I want to talk about what God wants to do through his church. I want to talk about how the church is an unstoppable force that Jesus himself has built up by his own work, called out from this world, and has given us work to do. That's what I want to talk about this morning. I want to talk about how Jesus gives us timeless affirmations about what the church is meant to do. And in order to talk about it, I want us to open our Bibles to the book of Matthew, chapter 16. Would you meet me there, please? Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. If you open your Bible straight to the middle, you go about 100 pages to the right, you'll find Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew's where we're going to be at in the 16th 
chapter. That's the big numbers in the book. And the small numbers are the verses. Matthew 16, verse 13 is where we're going to meet each other here this morning. And if you would, if you're able to, would you please rise to your feet as we read God's word for us today. Matthew chapter 16, I'm going to read verses 13 through 20 to get a better understanding of God's plan for the church and by application for us at the Brook in 2019. Y'all want to hear this? Matthew 16, verse 13 says, Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. This is God's word for us. You may be seated, family. I've been chomping at the bit to preach this word for a few weeks now. Matthew 16, verse 13 says that Jesus took his disciples to a place called Caesarea Philippi. It was the place that he chose to kind of mobilize them and give some affirmations about the church. The word church only shows up three times in the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John combined. And all three are in the book of Matthew. Here's the first instance. Jesus brings them to a place called Caesarea Philippi to get away in order for him to drop some great knowledge on them and mobilize them for his work. Caesarea Philippi is about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. It was a place where he would be able to be secluded because, you know, Jesus always had crowds following him. It was impossible for him to get away unless he really got away, and that's what he was doing here in Caesarea Philippi. 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee is a place that Jews didn't tend to go, so he wouldn't be bothered by the crowds, first of all, because of the distance, but there's a second reason, and I'll share that with you a little bit later. Caesarea Philippi is where the start of the Jordan River takes place as the waters come down Mount Hermon from the snow-capped mountain there, melts down at the base, and helps flood into what's now the Jordan River. It's at Caesarea Philippi that Jesus is able to get away in order for his disciples to hear from him. A lot of times in order to dream, we've got to stop and get away, fam. In order to hear God's voice, we've got to get away. I was thinking about this. Yes, it's Super Bowl Sunday, so I had to drop an illustration here. When you watch good football, you watch a good wide receiver. That's the person who catches the pass from the quarterback. A good wide receiver is able to run a route in such a way that he gets space from his defender. He creates space so the quarterback can have an easier target. You following me? It's that separation he has that enables the receiver to receive from the quarterback. 
And in like manner, Jesus is getting separation from the distractions of the world in order to deliver some goods to his people. Family, we got to get away for God to deliver his goods to us so often. We need separation from the distractions of our world. And here Jesus is doing that with his disciples in Caesarea Philippi. And he begins his instruction with a simple question. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? That, that is the, a big question. That's the pressing question. Jesus is seeing what kind of pulse his disciples have on his society and their understanding of Jesus. They tell Jesus four different answers. Some say John the Baptist. You see that in verse 14, 15 thereabouts. John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Some say Jeremiah. And some the prophets. These might seem like really random names to you. But let let me tell you why they thought Jesus might have been these individuals or like the second coming of one of these peoples. John the Baptist was known as a great moral leader until he literally lost his head at the hands of, of Herod. John the Baptist had a responsibility to prepare the way for God's deliverer, his Messiah, to come. But John was the one who prepared the way. He was not the one to walk the way, which separated him from Jesus. Jesus was altogether different, indeed even better. They said some say he's Elijah. Elijah was one of the great prophets of the Old Testament. In fact, he's often known for his confrontation with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel where Elijah begins to mock their gods and then calls upon the God of heaven to send down fire. And God sends down this fire. Elijah was able to defeat the prophets of Baal, these wicked teachers. But Elijah wasn't able to defeat sin, making Jesus altogether better than Elijah. They said, well, maybe he's like Jeremiah, who's known as the weeping prophet, whose heart went out to God's people when they were rebellious, But Jeremiah also was one who taught the new covenant, this plan that God would have to turn a heart of stone into a heart of flesh. Was that what Jesus was doing? Well, Jesus actually was the one who had the power to turn a heart of stone into flesh. Altogether better than Elijah, or Jeremiah. They said maybe Jesus was one of the prophets who revealed the rebellion of God's people, but the prophets only exposed, they couldn't deal with, Jesus exposed and dealt with our sin problem. So when they come saying, Jesus, some think you're this, this person or that, what you notice, there's an element of truth in each of these, but they're not the whole truth. Family, it's important to understand that elements of truth don't, uh, don't equate the entirety of truth. And even in our own world, there are elements of truth of what people, your coworkers, think about Jesus. Now, I know you guys are, you're ingraining your, in your rhythms of life. You've got coworkers, classmates. Let me, let me ask you, shout them out. What are some ideas of who Jesus is? Maybe one or two words. What's Jesus like according to people you know? He's a good person, moral teacher. You guys hear that one? That's, a, that's true, but it's not the entire truth. There's more. What's another thing we hear about Jesus' identity? Okay, he's the man upstairs, right? Yeah, Jesus ascended into the heavens, but he's not just in the heavens. He's at work even now. There's an element of truth. What's another thing we hear about Jesus in our culture? Okay, he did miracles, right? He was a miracle worker. But let's not forget his greatest miracle was raising from the dead to defeat sin and death. There's truth, but oftentimes only an element of it. You might have heard him as a revolutionary. Yeah, he caused some revolution. 
But that wasn't all he was. Some say he was a martyr. Yeah, he did die for his cause, but he, but he ain't stayed dead for his cause. But there, there are all kinds of understandings. And, and I know you guys got a pulse on what people say about Jesus. So the question of who do people say that the Son of Man is, is an important question for us to constantly be thinking. What do my coworkers think about Jesus? We all need to know those answers to have a good pulse on our context. But what Jesus tells us is that the perceptions and ideas of others is not, at the end of the day, the most important thing. Because Jesus follows up with a second question. Look what he says in verse 15. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Starts out with the word but. That's a contrast. Jesus is like, okay, they said this, but, but who do you say that I am? At the end of the day, that's the most important question. What is the conclusion you've drawn about Jesus' identity? This is important for us all to be confronted with. Until we're confronted with this question, we can coast through life. But when we're forced to ask, who really is Jesus? Then our statement comes with some expectation. We can say that he died on the cross for us, but what does that mean for me? And I love what Peter does. Peter, who's often known to be the big mouth disciple, put his foot in his mouth so often, times without number. I think that's why we all love him so much, because we feel like we're just like him. He speaks up, though, and makes this great, insightful, and exactly true statement. He says in verse 16, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That's what Peter says, and I'm sure Peter meant that, but I know Peter didn't understand fully what he was even saying. But what he was saying is, you're the one my grandma told me about that was coming. You're the one that our great ancestors hoped for. You're the one that the prophets of old said would come and rescue us. You're the one that Adam and Eve hoped in after they ate of the fruit. You're the one that David said would sit on his throne forever. I'm sure Peter meant that. But did Peter really mean that Jesus also was the one who came to win? Did he know that? Did he know that he was the one who came to win by losing in order to win victoriously, ultimately? Did he know that Jesus was the one who came to deal with the bigger problem called sin? Did Peter fully know that Jesus was the serpent crusher, the righteous king, the suffering servant the one whose body would not decay and whose enemies would be under his feet. Peter's statement is right. Jesus is the Christ, which means he's the anointed one, the deliverer. How much did Peter truly understand there? But Jesus tells him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. The word bar means son of. So apparently Peter's father's name is Jonah. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Jesus is like, all right, Peter, you got the right answer. You got an A in the class, but you need to know you didn't get the A by studying. You didn't get the right answer. It, was all, it wasn't by your own ability. It was something that God, the God, my Father, gave to you. It reminds me of the passages in the Bible that tells us, for by grace we have been saved through faith. And then Paul says, and that is not your own doing. It's a gift of God. It reminds me of the passages where it says he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. It's like Jesus is reaffirming to Peter, yeah, Peter, you got the right answer, but it was my Father who gave it to you. And then what Jesus does, he gives him what I'm going to say are four timeless affirmations 
about the church. See, the question of who do people say that I am, who do you say that I am, and then the answer to that question now means we got to do something in light of it. And what Jesus is doing here in Caesarea Philippi, he's saying, all right, disciples, this is what I want you to know, but now I'm about to unleash you guys. All right, I got down to the heart matter, what you believe, but now I'm about to tell you something and turn it around and send you out. He says, Peter, you got the right answer. Flesh and blood did not give that to you. My father gave that to you. And he says, I got four things for you to hear. And this is what he tells them in verse 18. I tell you, he says, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Family, these are four things that Jesus gives Peter that I believe he wants to relate to us today at the brook. The first thing is this, that the church is called, is a called out people. He's like, all right, Peter, you, you got the right answer, but you need to know that I'm doing something, though, through your affirmation. I'm building my church. I'm building my church around this truth. The word Peter in Greek is Petros, and the word rock in Greek is Petra. So what Jesus says you are Petros, and on this Petra, I will build my church. Jesus is using some wordplay here. He's a master teacher. And what he's saying is, Peter, I'm going to use you to bring forth this truth that you just stated to influence the lives of thousands who will then take it to thousands, and I'm going to do a movement to build my church. But notice here, the church, though, is not a building. Jesus was not into masonry. He uses building as a metaphor. He builds his church by bringing in people, but not in people to a building, but into his gathering. The word church in Greek is ekklesia, which means a called out. And what Jesus is saying is, I'm going to create an assembly, a gathering of people who I have called out. Not called away into seclusion and isolation to be a hermit. That's, That's not God's plan. But I've called them out of where they're at to represent me as an assembly. And Jesus is saying, these are my people. I will build my church. You with me, family? I will build my church. This is not brick and mortar, but the pulse of people who have souls. From day one, we've stated very clearly here at the brook that you are not at church right now. You are with the church right now. If this building burns down, the brook remains the church. The church is the people of God. And Jesus says, Peter, on this statement, on you and your action, I will build my church. People will come to know me based on your testimony, and they take that to others. I'm going to build my church. I'm going to bring people in. When we thought about this, when the brook started back in 2013, we want to really have an understanding. Hey, we are the church. We are the people. We are the church. And in order to do that, um, some of you might not know, God gave us this building for free. We were given this building from a former church who had a vision for something new to happen. They gave us this building and all kinds of other bank account, a home that we live in right now that owns to, belongs to the church. I mean, God did that. It's crazy. But we got the building In January of 2013, our first meeting in this building was in May of 2013. And that was by strategy. 
because we wanted the church to understand that the church wasn't the building. It was the people. And so what we did, we gathered in homes. We gathered in one home in particular to gather together and build the church, and we ain't touch a brick. But we were building faithfully. We wanted a church to see a church family who was able to meet in homes throughout the week and reconvene on a Sunday morning collectively together, together to be encouraged, to be built up, to worship, and to say, all right, now go back out into your families, your, your real community families, and those households you gather with, and let's keep growing deeper, and it will get back together on Sunday, be equipped, send out, do your work, come back, get equipped, get sent out, and have this rhythm about us. We, we wanted to be a church family that, that in our households, when we gathered in these real communities, we would not just study the Bible, as good as that is, but my friend Crawford Lurid says, too much rich food is going to kill us sometimes. And we can feast on the Bible so often and only do that, but never serve in our neighborhoods, never be on mission sharing our faith, never uh, showing hospitality. And what he's saying is, what good is the knowledge we gain by just studying the Bible if we're not actually putting it to work? That rich food will kill us. That doesn't mean we, don't, we stop eating it, but it means we need to eat and be active. And so we wanted our real communities to be a place where we could feast on God's word, but also be mobilized into mission. Because we know that Jesus says, I will build my church, referring to the peoples. So the first timeless truth we understand that Jesus drops on his disciples in Caesarea Philippi is that the church is a people. A people gathered, called out for Jesus. The second thing we learn here is that the church belongs to Jesus. I will build my church. Note the pronouns. I and mine. Jesus is saying, let's make this really clear, Brooke family. This church does not belong to any pastor. This church does not belong to any elder team or to a congregation or to even an address. It belongs to Jesus. I always cringe a little bit when people say, how's your church doing? And I'm like, I know what you mean, but it ain't mine. Jesus says, I will build my church, and I'm thankful that he puts it that way. Because what I see is in the building, it alleviates a whole lot of pressure. Because Jesus says, I'm going to do the building. So what we got to do is just do, join him in his work. Sometimes we fear, God, I'm going to mess it up. And Jesus is like, it's my church. I'm doing the building. Just serve me, all right? I got it. I'll take care of the results. Just be faithful. That alleviates pressure, but that also motivates evangelism. Because then I know when I go out and tell someone about Jesus, I know he's building the church. So I'm just an instrument. If they reject me, it's not that they're rejecting me. They're rejecting the message, but I got a responsibility still. So I feel alleviated of pressure, and I feel motivated to do the work, because ultimately it's Jesus who's going to do it. It's his church. He's the head of it. We are his body. And that's the second timeless truth. The church belongs to Jesus. The third thing that Jesus drops on them about the church is that it won't be stopped. He tells them, verse 18, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. 
Now, traditionally, we've understood this as, as the gates of hell seem to try to attack us, it won't win against the church. That's how we've traditionally understood it. Until we pause for a moment and say, what are gates for? What are the gates of your house for? Yeah, it's not to keep you in. It's to keep people out. What Jesus is saying here is the gates of hell and its representation on this earth wants to keep out the voices of the godly, the movement of the church. And what Jesus is saying is hell will not stop the onslaught of God's church. Hell is on the defensive here, not on the offensive. The church is on the offensive. We are the ones that have been called out to go into, not to sit passively resisting, but to engage our world. The gates of hell will not prevail. Now, I mentioned to you Jesus is in Caesarea Philippi. And I told you that one reason it was helpful is that it's 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, and that makes it a journey for others to keep following him. But there was a second reason I said. The second reason why people wouldn't follow Jesus, especially the Jewish leaders, why they wouldn't follow Jesus to Caesarea Philippi is because Caesarea Philippi was known to be a pagan place. In old ancient history, it was a place where Baal, the god of the Canaanites, was worshipped. And then when the Greek empire conquered the region, the Greek god Pan was worshipped in Caesarea Philippi. Pan is the god of the forest. He had goat legs and a human upper body with horns. You might remember that, like Mr. Tumnus and C.S. Lewis. That's the Greek god Pan. And what Pan would do is he would yell a shout in war, according to Greek mythology, that would be so frightening and throw people into a panic. How we get our word panic. But in addition to this, Pan was known to be a god who delighted in detestable acts. He was summoned by detestable sexual acts. And here in Caesarea Philippi, there is to, until this day a cave there where people believed God, the gods of the underworld lived in. In this cave, there was a deep abyss of water that many could not measure it. And what they would do is they would worship Pan and throw human sacrifices into this abyss as a way to appease him and summon the gods of the underworld. Caesarea Philippi in, Greek, in the Greek world was much like the gates of hell. It was the entry place. This cave represented the place where their foreign gods would come on out. And isn't it interesting that of all the places for Jesus to take his church, his disciples, to give them a vision for the church, he takes them to a pagan place at the gates of hell where all detestable acts are at, where people were fearful and timid, where the God who brought a panic would be, and he tells them, this gates of hell will not prevail against the church. We see Jesus' creative strategy to give his disciples the most explicit visual they can have and said, as bad as this place is, this will not prevail against my church. The church will not be stopped. Family, that does something to us 
when we do Jesus' work. Yes, there, there will be ministries that don't, that don't succeed and thrive. There will be church buildings and ministries that close. That, that will happen. But what we know is, even in those works, when they're faithful, God is glorified. And we also know that ultimately, the church universal won't be stopped. And so as us at the brook, we are part of the church. And we get to join Jesus in his unstoppable work until he comes back. We should have a certain swag about us, family. We, we should walk a certain way when we're up in the hood. We, we should have a certain kind of mindset. Not, not a self-boastful kind of thing, but a thing saying, like, Jesus is going to do it. He's going to build his church. The gates of hell won't stop. It won't prevail. One of the things that concerns me is, though, many of us have turned into koala bears. You might know about the koala bear. Sleeps 22 hours a day. And the reason it sleeps, you may not know this, is because of its diet. It feasts upon eucalyptus leaves. And eucalyptus leaves contain a toxins and a very low nutritional status. And they're high in fibrous matter, according to SaveTheKoalas.com. And what it says is that it takes a large amount of energy to digest their diet so they are sleeping in order to conserve their energies. Isn't it ironic that the very thing they feast upon is the thing that lulls them to sleep? Isn't it ironic that their diet consistently makes them tired? I hope you hear me, family. I'm not talking about what you're eating today on the dinner table. What I'm saying is we as the church, when we are feasting upon the things of our culture and our world, delighting in those things over and above the glory and joys of God, and yes, he's given us things in culture. He's given us food to enjoy. Go and enjoy it. He's given us hobbies. He's given us work. He's given us friendship. Those are good gifts from God. But when those things take the place of God, they will lull you to sleep. And what we are feasting upon will cause us to be lethargic. And then 22 hours a day, we're not thinking about engaging God in his work. We're not thinking about the fact that we are the church, the unstoppable people of God who belong to Jesus. We're not thinking about that. So let's resist the koala temptation. And let's remember this third important affirmation. Family, the church will not be stopped because it belongs to Jesus. Fourthly and lastly, Jesus says the church has some risky work to do. He says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. I'm going to give us a quick summary of this. What Jesus is saying, all right, Peter, is like I'm giving you the keys to the house. And your responsibility is to open the door and tell people to come on in. I'm, I'm telling you, Peter, disciples, church, you've got work to do in our world. 
and the keys to the kingdom of heaven are there. The doors are open, and it's your job to call people in. You got work to do, he's telling Peter. He's telling the disciples. And we know that work is a risky kind of work. But make no mistake, the keys have a purpose. When you close on your home and you get the keys for the first time, I've never heard of anybody who says we pitched a tent in the front yard. When you get that car for the first time and the dealer hands you the keys, I've never heard anybody say, let me call an Uber now. But you take the key to open the door, and for the car, you take it to drive it. And what Jesus is telling Peter and the disciples, and by application, all of us, here are the keys. You got work to do. You're the church. Don't be afraid. Gates of hell won't prevail. It won't be stopped. You belong to me. I'm doing the work, but you got to go. You got to go do it. It's going to be risky. You're going to be rejected at times. You won't know what to say always. You're going to fail. You'll feel like a hypocrite. It's risky, but know that I'm with you. So get out and do the work. So the fourth thing Jesus tells us to do, we got risky work to do. And I want to tell you about some of the risky work we believe God is calling us to do here in 2019 at the Brook. I want to put on the screen here our water acronym. When we started the Brook, we took the word water and the five letters of it in order to demonstrate our core values as a church. The things that we see as most important. And we say that it is white flag worship which means we want a church, we want to see God's church just completely surrender to him. The white flag is the universal symbol of surrender. And so as a church, we surrender to give our life to Jesus, and we surrender to live for him. The A stands for always on mission. We realize a missionary is not just someone who heads elsewhere to do God's work, but a missionary is also us who go to work tomorrow morning, who go to school, who's going to be in third period tomorrow who's on the block at the library, at the gas station. That's where your mission field is. T is thirsty prayers, where we realize we are completely dependent upon Jesus. As a deer pants for water, so my soul pants for you, O God. Psalm 42. The E stands for embodying the scriptures because the word of God is the rich food. And we got to digest it, but then we got to be active in being on mission and worshiping. But we need to know God's word, not just leave it in the head, but to embody it in our lives. And then the R stands for real community, because we want to live life together, being real with one another, no matter what life is going, what's going on in life. As we think about these, as we think about white flag worship, certainly a lifestyle, but even as we think about our Sunday morning gathering, family, uh, it was about two winters ago, we remodeled our overflow space to put another 35 seats or so. We have 198 chairs in the sanctuary. Family, this room's getting full. Praise be to God. And where we've been is not, I believe, where God ultimately wants to keep taking us. We've always said our job is not to lock the front door saying, hey, look, isn't it great? We're all here. But to continue to create space for God to do more work. I don't know what that's exactly going to look like. i got ideas, and we're praying that through. But I want you guys to join us in that as we think about what's it going to take to create more room? Another service? Church planting? Both? That's what we're praying for. And with that, there's going to be responsibilities that fall on us to 
say, all right, Jesus, we, we want to do the work. It's not about how many physical people enter a building. It's never been about that. But it's always been about those who right now are objects of wrath who don't know Jesus, whom we long to see know Jesus. And if we're faithfully engaging our community with the hope that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead to conquer our sin, to give us eternal life and forgiveness, then God forbid we are ever content that we would always be seeking ways to reach more and more people. And some of you are here today because of that. Some of you are exploring today because of that. And that's why we're so happy you're here. We want you to know that Jesus is the forgiver of your sins and he wants you to put your entire faith in him. And we want others in your family to know this like many of us have come to know. So our white flag worship calls us to be creative, I believe, in 2019. We're having conversations and we're dreaming. We want you to join with us in that. Is there an amen out there? To be always on mission. And by the way, everything we do, we filter through this grid that keeps us on task without taking on things we just can't do. There's a lot of great ideas out there, but not every great idea needs to be done. It's just kind of how we sift it through. We, we want to be always on mission. We've talked a lot about how God has opened doors at Steinmetz High School and Locke Elementary School with our alderman's office and at the park. But I, I can't help but wonder, what other doors are there to be discovered? What are the places that God planted you like a sleeper cell? Say, hey, did you know that you actually are where you're at because I put you there? To open doors for other work to happen? I just love, man, there was a time we were praying, like, God, we know you want us to serve at Locke Elementary School, but we, we, we don't know how, how, to, how to get in there. We don't know what you're doing there, and then God had the great plan and idea of actually sending us a teacher who's part of our Brooke family, engaged in the work faithfully. Amen. Yeah, you can clap to God for that. And for our brother, for his faithful work, and the doors God has opened through that. Steinmetz High School, God opened doors to get to know the principal and staff and teachers. And little did we know that God would actually send one of our own Brook people there on staff this this school year. Maybe others. At the park, we said, you know, it would be really cool to see God use us to reach the kids in this neighborhood. Little did we know that he was putting baseball in the heart of others, saying, just start a baseball league. We'll make the men of the church the head coaches. We'll get the families involved. We'll get other kids in the neighborhood out here, and we'll just show the love of Jesus and pray for God to open doors to tell people how Jesus died for their sins and rose to conquer death. And he's done it. What other mission fields are out there in 2019? What other creative means is God going to use to engage the ones that we've already had? We see that our thirsty prayers and embodying the scriptures in real community oftentimes take place in our real community gatherings throughout the week. In March, we're going to be exploring ways to engage our community as a mission field. But even as we're starting next week, we're going to be opening the word and following this sermon series and talk about the implications of this in our lives in order for God to train us and continue to equip us in order to send us out. And that's when we get in prayer together, men and women separate, sometimes together, to interceding, say, God, we need your help here. God, we want to center around your word because this is where the truth is. God, we want to be a real community because sometimes we're not feeling great. Sometimes life stinks. And we need my brother and my sister and my life to hold me up when I haven't got the strength to stand. That happens in our real communities. And what new real communities might God start come September? Maybe your home will be the next 
headquarters for mission in the neighborhood. Maybe you will be the next apprentice in your real community or leader in your group. A lot of problem with our vision and dreams is that they're just too small for a big God. So don't limit him. We got people in our family who are already taking courageous steps. In the next few weeks, we're going to be doing baptisms here. We got some 15 men, women, youth, and kids who are getting baptized at the end of this month. Publicly proclaiming that they want people to know that they're following Jesus. That's risky, family. That's like putting a target on your back. But they're saying, we know that God is greater than anything anyone will bring toward us. See, risky obedience is not always the big, grand decisions, but sometimes it's just the, the small choices we make. The mindset, the priorities, the way we align our lives. And when Jesus tells his disciples, he says, I will build my church. It's a people's. It belongs to me. It won't be stopped, but you got work to do. He's looking us in the eye at the brook, and he's saying, so what are you going to do? And these are big picture things, but there are things nonetheless that we need to engage in and dream about. I, I long to see us multiplying as a church. We're in talks with a brother who's going to be planting soon this year, seeing how we can best come alongside of him as a church. We're also talking about ways to expand our services, potentially hire new staff, which is going to cost more money. We're going to say, hey, would you guys give generously to, to fund that? Not just to make a name for ourselves, but to storm the gates. We've got work to do, family. We've got dreams to dream. We've got uvulas to cut out. We've got risks to take. This past week, we had that polar vortex. And that polar vortex was uh, something to think about. Some of you guys might have heard of the frost quakes. I never heard of a frost quake until this week. And apparently what it is is in the winter, it's normal for the moisture at the surface to freeze. That's normal. But when the temperatures reached where they were at, it was able to freeze the moisture that was deep beneath the soil. So deep that this normally doesn't happen. And when the moisture froze, it began to expand, causing something like an earthquake, which you call a frost quake. And some people actually heard uh, explosion-like sounds in the dawn hours. And what they tell us is that these frost quakes are the result of something happening beneath the surface that became audible at the surface level. And when Jesus comes to us, And he tells us, I'm going to build my church. Hell won't prevail. You got work to do. He's like, I got work to do beneath the surface here in your church, in my church. And this will then make some noise on the surface in the neighborhood. You guys with me here? In our city, in our country. I want to be a part of that noise. Do you want to be part of the explosion? Do you want to be a part of God's work? Jesus wants to do it. He's doing the surface level work. He's doing things even in your heart right now. Maybe he's even helping you dream again. Let's not get koala, but let's get on God's work and say, Jesus, I pray 
that when 2019 closes, we can look back and say, Jesus, you made some noise. You made some noise for your kingdom. Praise be to you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, that you are God is relentless, Lord. And that you, Jesus, would have the nerve to take your disciples to Caesarea Philippi of all places to give them the greatest visual they can see of how your church will not be stopped, but will prevail. And so, Lord, we stand here 2,000 years later looking at that same picture, God. We say, God, give us courage. God, increase our faith. Help us dream again how you want to use us for maximum kingdom impact as individuals, as single men and single women, as young people in our elementary schools, as couples, as, as, as households, as a church family, as real communities. God, give us a vision for that. And I pray that we'd walk about with the kind of confidence that comes from you, Lord, and that you will build your church. God, forgive us for our lethargy. Forgive us for consuming things that just ultimately caused us to drift from you. I pray that we would put those things in their right place and seek you first. God, we know these are life and death choices of eternal magnitude. So God, make some noise, we pray, in our hearts and in the lives of those around us. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Family, who wants to sing? Anybody want to sing? Let's rise to our feet, fam. I want to have our prayer team, if you guys would make yourself available and come forward, we're going to sing this closing song and declare God's might, his plan for us, what he wants to do through us. Man, maybe God has given you a picture that you haven't seen in a long time. Maybe he's causing some old dreams that you know were from him to rise back to the surface that you have kind of just suppressed for all kinds of reasons. Maybe the timing hasn't, wasn't right, but now it's coming back. Would you, would you share that with one of our prayer team members? I know they'd love to pray with you about that. Maybe God's showing you that he wants you to do something unique even here through the brook. He's giving you a vision for your life. Maybe he's giving you ideas for this church. Please make that known. Maybe you lack courage. There's timidity in your heart. And we just want to intercede, say, God, help us. And if you're here today and you are, it's, you're, it's clicking for the first time that Jesus is real, that he died for you, and you want to be a child of God, you want to put your faith in him, turn away from the life that you used to live and receive a new life that he offers you, man, our prayer team would love to pray with you and teach you how to be a disciple of Jesus. He's got work to do in and through us. So let's be faithful to that task. Let's sing together, family.
only stand on this truth that sets me free, Jesus Christ. Let's lift this up, sing, you are, because you are stronger, you are stronger, sin is broken, you have saved. 